We're in the book of Romans. We've seen that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. He's been communicating them to the, the depths of the gospel that Paul says is the power of God for salvation. Of proclaiming that righteousness comes through faith. Righteousness, being in right relationship to God and His law. Not through what we do, but through what God has done for us and received by faith. That through faith in Christ, we can be made right with God. Why is this a message that everyone needs to hear? That is the need for the Jew and the need for the Gentile. Because Paul told us a couple of chapters ago, all of us were in Adam, the first man, the representative of all humanity. Adam rebelled against God because he was our representative as it went for the representative, so it went for everyone that Adam represents. He was guilty, therefore we were guilty. And not only that, out of that guilt and out of our our corrupted hearts flowed our own sin, adding to our guilt. Realizing that in Adam, we had no power to do good. We were enslaved and under the dominion and the power of sin. We needed deliverance. We needed redemption. God sent another representative, Jesus, who lived the perfect life for us, who died in our place and rose to new life. And as the new representative, those who trust in Him, His death is our death. His resurrection and life is our life. Uh, His fulfilling the law is applied to our account. The dominion of sin is broken. Uh, As God sent and and gave the law to reveal our sin and show our need for a a redeemer and a deliverer, uh, the condemnation of the law, we're also set free from the condemnation of the law. Uh, And the the, the Spirit is now writing God's law on our hearts that we can now freed up from the dominion of sin, live freely following and seeking to glorify our God. Um, So, uh, but one of the the things that we've we've seen that Paul's been talking about, uh, especially in helping us understand the need not only to be set free from the dominion of sin, uh, but also needing to be set free from, from the law and its condemning power. And one of the things that Paul was telling us about is one of the things about the law is that uh, through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's something about the law that seems to excite and inflame sin in our hearts and in the world. And so it leads this question that, that comes up in light of the fact that we also need to be delivered from the law and the connection of sin flaring up in our lives and in our world and our heart in light of God's law. Does that mean that the law is bad? Something we need to understand. Because it's going to impact how we, we live out the Christian life. How now that we are set free in Jesus from sin and from that old relationship that we had to the law, how do we, what does this new life and these new relationships look like? This relationship to the law and the relationship to sin. Paul's going to continue to get into this as we continue through Romans chapter 7 together. Uh, We are looking in uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 943. We are going to look at verses 7 through 25 this morning. 
So if you would follow along with me there in your copy of God's word. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but, the very, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. God, you proclaim to us that the gospel is your power for salvation. Uh, You have told us of the freedom that we have in Jesus. Uh, You know the struggles that we have to live out who we are in you. Uh, Our continued struggles with to relate rightly to sin and the law in light of who we are in Jesus. We pray this morning that you would continue to renew our hearts, renew our minds in light of your mercy, in light of who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, Would your word be a source of great hope and strength and direction for us. May we behold beautiful things here in the scriptures, beautiful things in your good law, May we encounter our Savior, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. So it's important for us to understand 
if we're going to relate rightly to the law and to sin, that we understand what, what is true about the nature of both of these things. Is the law good or not? Because it sure seems like some of the stuff Paul has been saying, remember, back over in verse 14 of chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. When our relationship to the law changes, our relationship to sin changes. Is the law bad? Or what he says up in uh, chapter, or chapter 7, verse 5, for while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law arouses sin. It increases transgression. Is the law bad? Notice what Paul's answer is as he begins this section. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Notice his response. By no means. We must understand that the law of God is good, Paul wants us to know. He rejects that understanding of, of trying to, to, to picture or think of the law in any terms other than goodness is wrong. We must realize the goodness of God's law. Notice how he begins to start off explaining this. Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Notice, remember, part of what God is, was giving the law to us for was to expose and direct and inform us on what sin was. So we might know what is wrong. So we might know how not to live in God's world. So that we would see and orient our lives in conformity to, to Him and who He is. It's exposing our sin, we saw. It's multiplying our sin as we respond to these commandments that are there. But Paul's saying, I wouldn't have known what sin was without the law clearly, directly explaining it and pointing it out. For especially this commandment of covetousness that goes directly to my heart and what I'm longing for and hoping in. If the law exposes sin, if the law informs us and shows us what sin is, not just theoretically, but in my own heart, as I bring and, and bring my life to bear before God's law, we should never think that it is sinful because of that. But think about it this way. Let's say you're eating a spinach sandwich. Everybody knows about spinach. It loves to get stuck in your teeth. Maybe you have one tooth in particular that spinach always gets stuck in. Your collector tooth. Now let's say you've eaten your spinach sandwich and you're walking around. You've been to a, you're going to a birthday party, hanging out with your friends. And the next thing you know, you walk into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh man, there's spinach in my teeth. Do you ever pick up the soap dispenser on the counter and smash it into that mirror? 
How dare that mirror expose this spinach in my teeth? The problem is the mirror for doing that, for showing me my defections and imperfections in my teeth or on my face or whatever it may be. No! How good that mirror was there. You've just saved yourself the rest of the night's embarrassment of having that there. It's a, kind of a, a silly way to think about it. But do you see what Paul's saying? Exposing what is sinful, exposing what is wrong, isn't something that's a problem with the law. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And that's a good thing, that you would see what is wrong, that you would steer away from it and recognize your need to not live like that. But also notice what Paul goes on to say. It's not just that, that, sin expo- or that the law exposes sin and points out for us our own sinfulness, exposing for us our, our need for deliverance, exposing to us our sin. But notice as well, it promises life. You see that in verse 10? The very commandment that promised life. It's another aspect of the reason that God gave His law to show humanity and to show His people how life is supposed to be lived. What it looks like to live humanity out in its fullness. If you want to experience what life is all about, if you want to experience what it looks like to live as a blessed, happy, fulfilled human, then look to God's law. It promises the path to life. If we question this, think think about it. Think about Elizabeth City. What if in Elizabeth City, every single citizen, government leader, teacher, police officer, bagger at the grocery store, all followed the Ten Commandments to a T. Every single one of them. No worshiping of other gods. No depending and resting on idols. Honoring and always speaking the truth. Uh, Promoting and giving rest and always worshiping God. Uh, Never stealing. Always giving generously. Faithfulness in marriages. Respecting sexuality in the bodies of others. Never taking life. Never saying harsh words. Never resenting other people. We would truly be the harbor of hospitality. Who would not want to live in Elizabeth City if those were the kinds of people that you encountered? If that was what life was lived like here? It would be perfection. It would be the best place to live in the entire world. On the flip side, imagine if our town was a place where no one ever obeyed or followed the Ten Commandments. How bad of a place would that be to live? You see, the goodness of God's law is revealed also in seeing what He's directing us to and showing us this is how you can experience life in His fullness. Not meriting eternal life. We're talking about seeing God's good design 
The instruction manual for living as a human. Notice how he continues to explain it there in verse 12. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. These are all all terms that are also connected to the character of our God. Because He's the holy God who's given us His good laws. They're, They're holy and good and righteous because they flow from Him. They reflect His heart, His priorities. They're He's, in a sense, written down aspects of His character to be revealed and lived out to His people. So, as He continues to go on down, even there in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. It's important for us to understand what that that means. As He's saying, one, we're seeing that it's something that is coming from the Holy Spirit, revealed to the people of God and revealed to the world through the Spirit. But also, we've uh, talked about this a little bit before, the difference sometimes that Paul uses to talk about the flesh and the spirit, or what is fleshly and what is spiritual. Uh, Spiritual is something that is a part of what is that renewed and undistorted aspect of reality, of God's kingdom, of His purposes that He's working out, and seeing that the law plays a role and a part and a picture for us of restoration of wholeness when lived consistently with it. So notice what Paul is saying here. We must never think that the law in any aspect of itself is sinful or bad. It is good. It is holy. It is righteous because it comes from a good and gracious lawgiver and God. On the contrary, we should see sin as being bad. It's not the law that's bad. It's sin that is bad. Sin is the problem. Notice what he says in verse 8. The law is what's revealing to us sin and our own sin. But notice in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's Sin that is bad. The problem isn't the law. The problem is sin. Sin in the world and sin in our hearts that uses and takes this good commandment from God, distorts, twists, and uses it as an opportunity to inflame itself against and rebel against that good command. I mean, think about it as we we see it in our world and in our lives. You know, one lesson I've never had to give any of my kids, and one that my parents never had to teach me, is how to sin. You ever had that, that lesson? Your parents saying, hey, you know what? I know this is going to be a really hard one to figure out, but we're going to have to sit down today, and I'm going to have to tell you what it means and what it looks like for you to disobey me. No. I don't have to teach that. I can see it as... We have all these cars in our, in our little library in the house. And cars are meant to roll on the ground, not fly through the air. Every single kid has had to learn the lesson, these are not balls, they're cars. And so, as a new little one comes around and they begin to play with the cars, I communicate, these are to roll. Do not throw the cars. Only throw a ball. And I see it multiple times. They look at me. As soon as they hear that, they reach down, looking at me the whole time, pick up the car. Now, whose fault is that? 
Was it me putting that idea into their mind? No, Paul says. It's sin. Sin in them. Sin in me and in you that hears the commandment, that hears the law, and wants to rebel against this good command and decree. Uses it to distort their hearts. Uses it to destroy and bring damage to them and others around us. That is what sin is doing. Sin is the problem. Uh, Paul tells us in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Meaning Paul said there was a, a time where, you know, I wasn't really clearly thinking about the law and what it was seeking to reveal to me. I was convinced of my goodness. I was convinced of my ability to live righteously before the, the Lord. But sin came in and began to expose what was going on. The law came in and exposed that. And I died realizing and seeing that I have no hope apart from God. So again, as he continues to go on in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life produced, uh, proved to be death. Sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. This is Paul's using language that's reflective of what was going on in the garden. Sin deceived me through the commandment and through it, it killed me. Remember God's good commandments and laws that He gave Adam and Eve? God said His blessing to Adam and Eve were commandments. I'm going to bless you. God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion, care for my world. God's commanding them to do those things. He commanded Adam, take care of the garden. Everything in the garden I've given you, all these trees that you see are good for food, you can eat from them. What a good commandment. What a great law. God is commanding him to do these things. There's only one thing that God said, do not do. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then Satan comes around. And what does Satan do? Satan uses the good commands that God does, distorting and twisting this good command to deceive Adam and Eve. God said that you'll die if you disobey. Satan goes, will you really die? Do you really think that he has your good interest in mind? Do you really think these commands are good for you? He's trying to keep stuff from you. These commandments aren't good. You need to rebel against these commandments. You need to reject what God has said and what happened. Through using the good command, distorting and twisting it and deceiving Adam and Eve, what happened? They were killed. It brought death for them and everyone else. Sin is what is the problem. That's why Paul says in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. One of the reasons God sent the law is to show us how wickedly sinful and bad sin is. It is not good. What is good is God's law. 
What is good is God's commands. What is good is what God is calling you to do. Sin is rejecting that, and sin is wicked and evil and sinful. And your reaction to God's commands expose sin and its corruption even more. This is important for us as God's people to recognize and realize uh, because it's becoming more and more common in our world and it's seeping into the church to look at God's commandments and to say that they are the problem. That God's commandments are restrictive. That God's commandments are oppressive. That God's commandments are, and rules are those which are limiting your ability to find your true identity, to experience fullness in life. We need to hear that that is a distortion of what the Scriptures are telling us. The law is good. What God tells us in His law about sexuality and our bodies, who He's created us to be, what God tells us in His law about how we are to use our mouths and our words, what God tells us in His law about what we're to do with our money and our stuff, what God tells us in His law about how we're to respond when we are treated wrongly and corruption is happening and not responding in retaliation but in forgiveness and pursuing and seeking justice. When God tells us through His commandments uh, the right ordering and functioning of roles within marriages and in households, our world thinks that those things are, uh, are oppressive, are demeaning, are, are taking and undercutting your identity. But notice what the Scriptures say. God's law is good. And anything that begins to expose even the slightest hint that there might be something not holy and righteous and good about God's law, whether it's from the world or it's in your heart, Paul is showing us that flows from sin. And we need to reject it. Because remember, what has Jesus done? Jesus has set us free. The, the sin that the law exposes, we deserved that condemnation. And that, if we remain in Adam, will be ours. But Jesus has come. He's perfectly lived out the law for us and brought redemption and salvation for us. Sin is exposing to us our great... I mean, the law is exposing for us the greatness of our sin and how much we need a Redeemer. How good of God to do that. Why then would we look at that very law and say it's bad when it's meant to lead us to Christ? Remember, what Paul has shown us is that through Jesus, the, the, condemn, the condemning power of the law has been broken. We have a new relationship with the law, but also the dominion of sin has been broken. Christ has removed the penalty for sin from us through His death on the cross. Christ has broken sin's power. Remember in Adam, we could only disobey. In Adam, we did not want to do good or delight or obey God's law. But now we've been set free and we can rebel against sin. and We can serve a new master. But what does that mean? Does, it, does that mean that now as, as Christians, as we live life out in God's world, that, that our interaction with sin is going to be just easy? 
There's not going to be any hardship or difficulty or struggle to live out a life of righteousness and holiness before our God? No. No, Paul says. The the fact that, that sin's power has been broken does not mean that we will live sinless lives now. Do you know there's some people that teach that? That in Jesus... Once you are saved, you will not sin anymore. And that perfection is possible in this life now. Well, let's see. You can teach that, but let's see if it is consistent with what the Scriptures say. Notice notice what Paul says. Paul is going to show us that even in the life of the believer, the battle against sin still rages. Notice how Paul shows us this through verses 14 through 23. Notice in verse 14, uh, up until this point in, in, the, in this section, Paul's been speaking about himself in the past tense. What did happen? What was going on? What sin had done? But notice here in verse 14, a shift moves to the present tense. And Paul is now from 14 down through the rest of the chapter is talking about what's true in his life presently. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Remember what we talked about about being flesh and spiritual. Spiritual, is this point is talking about things that are connected with the full redemption of all things that are completely and totally uh, renewed and restored by the Spirit of God. To be in the flesh are those things that haven't been fully restored and renewed. Paul is here talking about his experience of the reality of the fact that yes, sin's penalty has been definitively and permanently taken away in Jesus. Sin's power has been broken, but its presence still remains because we have not been fully redeemed and restored yet. We still experience life in the flesh awaiting God's renewal of all things. And notice what Paul says will be true in light of this. As he goes on to talk about his present sin. Notice in verse 15 and following. For I do not understand my own actions. He's talking about the reality of living life having not fully been redeemed yet. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Notice what Paul is saying. There's a battle. The things that he's saying about himself, there's something in his heart now of what he wants to do, what he delights in. Notice he even says that in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He continues to go on down in verse 23, uh, talking about the the law of his mind and that he's going to serve the Lord God with his mind. Remember, this is talking about the present experience of a believer. Why would we say that? Because remember what Paul told us was true of us in Adam, expressed in chapter 3 of Romans. 
Flip back over to chapter 3 in Romans. Chapter 3, verse 9, because it's important that we understand what Paul says is true of us apart from the redeeming work of Christ and the transforming power of the Spirit. Actually, uh, yeah, so uh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he continues to go down. There is no fear of God before their eyes in verse 18. Apart from being changed, our heart doesn't delight in God. We do not want to do good. What we want to do is to rebel. What we want to do is sin. So the fact that Paul here is talking presently about himself and saying things that are true about him, that he wants to obey God's law, that he delights in God's law, that he actually, he says, the fact that this battle is going on and there's good that I know that I want to do, but I'm not doing it. He actually tells us uh, in, here in chapter 7 that he's showing that in verse 18, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Delighting in the law, agreeing that it's good, serving God with his mind. This is evidence of the Spirit's work in his life. The fact that this battle is there, that there's this, this battle going on between wanting and delighting in God's law and the struggle with sin actually exposes and shows that sin's power has been broken. Because previously in Adam, you could do nothing but disobey. That's all you wanted to do. But now, remember what we saw last week. The promise of the new covenant, both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of the Spirit is writing, not on tablets of stone anymore, but on our hearts. That the law of God is written on our hearts that we begin to earn are changed. That our desires, our wanter is beginning to be fixed. And here we see it taking place. And Paul is saying this battle that is going on is actually a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. But it can be overwhelming. <laughs> Many days, it can seem like we're defeated. We know what we want to do. We know what God has called us to. Deep down, we desire to serve God. He's changed us. He's delivered us from sin. But we still face this struggle that there's that evil that seems to be, like Paul says, is right there with me. In verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I see uh, in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin is beginning to see that, he's lo that it's lost. And it ramps up the opposition. Uh, a way that has commonly been talked about for us to help to understand this is thinking about what was going on uh, in World War II. Uh, on D-Day, when the U.S. In, began to invade Germany's occupation in France and Normandy, that day, that victory on D-Day, actually looking back on it, was the end of German rule. It was the victory that marked Germany's loss. 
And all that we're waiting for, looking back on it, is for VE Day to come. But in the meantime, there were great battles and wars and skirmishes. The victory had begun, had begun to happen and had actually been secured. But it wasn't until VE Day that fully experienced the, the, the victory and the peace that had been secured on D-Day. It's the same for, for us. The victory over sin was accomplished and, and, and happened when Christ died and rose. He defeated sin. He defeated death. But we're waiting. We're waiting V.S. Day. When is that? When Jesus returns. When all of the corruption of our hearts and our flesh are completely done away with. When we're renewed and we're restored. But until then, the battle remains. Until then, sin is opposed to everything that God is doing and we must fight. In fact, this helps us understand what Paul was talking about. Here he's talking about this battle that's going on. But remember back over in chapter 6, Paul gave us this command following up this great proclamation that you've been set free from the power and dominion of sin, Paul says, do not let sin reign then in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The word that Paul uses there for instruments is actually weapons. Don't use your body as a weapon for unrighteousness. Instead, use your body Use everything about you as a weapon for righteousness. Paul is calling us to battle and to fight. We need to realize this because uh, some of us are, are experiencing the continued struggle with sin and is weighing heavily on us. There's sin that you have struggled with for years and years and years. You know what God has called you to. You know deep in your heart, I do not want to use my body like that anymore. I do not want to look at those things anymore. I don't want to go to that person's house and do what I know that they will want me to do. I do not want to speak to my friends or my parents like that anymore. But then the opportunity comes up and as much as you don't want to do it, you find yourself plunging back into it again and again and again. I don't want to drive that way home because I know what store I'm going to pass and I know what happens every time I pass it and it's calling my name and I don't know if I'll be able to resist. But what do you do every time? Instead of going right home, you go left and you take the long way around to buy what you know you shouldn't buy and to participate in what you know you shouldn't participate. We're overwhelmed. We feel like I don't have the ability in myself to resist. I can't do this anymore. Am I really free? I thought you said I was free, Jesus. I thought you said sin would have no dominion over me. But hear what Paul is saying. There's resistance happening here. There's a battle. Before, you were enslaved and weren't fighting at all. Something is beginning to happen and has happened through what Christ is doing. And this struggle and this battle is a sign that God is at work. But what do we do? 
How do we battle and fight when we feel like I can't do anything? Notice what Paul does. In the midst of his own discouragement, in the midst of his own wrestling, what does he do when sin is overwhelming him? Look in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now that term wretched, sometimes we hear that and we think wicked, evil. Like some old mean Halloween witch. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about one who is, who is in deep need. Who is overwhelmed and deeply necessitates the mercy and aid of another Paul is looking at his own situation and he's saying, I can't do it. I need a helper. Who will help me? Will someone help me? Who's he calling out to? Jesus. Because notice the answer. Who's going to save me? Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the one who sets us free. The picture here is of what's going on is we're in, we've been overwhelmed. We're in battle. Enemy forces have completely surrounded us. We are hunkered down, just a few of us. There is no hope. We know if it continues on like it is, the enemy will overrun us and completely wipe us out. And so what do we do? We get on the walkie-talkie. We call in for air support. Help us. We're overwhelmed. If you do not do something, we will be destroyed. And we call in the air support and they come in, swooping in, laying out their bombs and the enemy is taken away and we are preserved. You ever feel like you're in that situation? Feel like you're in that circumstance? What does it look like to fight? Notice what Paul is saying here. How do you use your body and your mind as a weapon against sin, it begins with prayer. It begins with calling out to your victorious deliverer who lived and did what you couldn't do, who died in your place. He is present. He is able to help. Notice the comfort that we have here in this passage is not, oh man, do I sure feel better about myself? I thought I was all alone with this struggle of sin. Well, it's good to see Paul struggles with sin, and you struggle with sin, and I struggle with sin. Let's just pat all each other on the back and say it doesn't matter. No, that's not our comfort. Our comfort is that we have a Savior. We have a Deliverer who has conquered sin. And He is active and present in our life and we can depend and rest upon Him. You see, the fact that, that this is truth and it's reality, that we are going to have to battle sin and it will be raising its wicked and cruel head against us until Jesus returns is not an excuse and a reason for us to say, oh well, it's just always going to be this way. Or there's really no point in fighting. I might as well give in to it. No, Paul says. Battle. Call on your commander. Call on your deliverer. Seek strength from the one who is able to do what you can't. Seek the goodness of Christ our Savior. 
Our ultimate hope is in the resurrection. Because when the resurrection comes on VS Day, we will only and always be able to do good. It will not be possible for you to sin anymore when Jesus returns. How good is that news? Are you longing for that freedom? Are you longing for that burden to come? To be relieved? It's coming. But we must wait. But we wait in confidence. And we wait with the deliverance of our Deliverer, our Redeemer, and our Savior. Jesus is at work. Do not give up. Keep fighting and battling because sin has lost. Jesus has won. Let's pray. God, we thank You that the Gospel is true. We thank You that we proclaim and You proclaim to us the victory of Jesus. Sustain us in our battle. May we not give up. May we not despair of Your commands. May we not falter under the attacks of sin. But may we call out and seek and pursue You. Work and move in us, we pray. Amen.